invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. The last of the major prophets following Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 5. And we've been in a series, uh, though, I can't remember the last time we were actually in Daniel. It was a few weeks ago. And uh, we'd worked our way through the first four chapters as the Lord demonstrates uh, before King Nebuchadnezzar that not he, but the God of heaven is the judge of all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar's judgments do not stand, but instead the God of heaven's, his judgments stand. And we've said before how really the name Daniel itself is a kind of caption to this book. The name means God is my judge. And Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all demonstrate that within the courts of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar, um, like the way of all men, uh, departs, uh, he fades away, and now uh, a a grandson of his is reigning on the throne named Belshazzar in the kingdom of Babylon. And here we read about the blasphemy, the sacrilege that Belshazzar engages in against the God of heaven and how the Lord deals with him um, through his prophet Daniel. So we'll begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 5 and we'll read the whole chapter. This is the holy and inspired word of God. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the front in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately... The finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because in excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. 
Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing of the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose, all, whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So far from God's holy an inspired word, I invite you and ask you to please keep your Bibles open as we think about this chapter together. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is not investment advice at all, so don't take it as such, but often when things seem to be crashing around us and uh, the economy seems to be going haywire, you often will hear these ads to now turn and to invest in gold, and Paul, who deals with investments, is smiling right now. Gold is often thought of as something that is stable, something that lasts, something that has value, that though the world shake and, 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 and totter and teeter, all of those things, gold will remain steady, stable, maintain its value. Well, it's interesting that earlier in Daniel, Daniel had told King Nebuchadnezzar that he was the head of gold, that his kingdom was represented by gold. And Nebuchadnezzar himself built this giant statue of pure gold and as a monument to the lasting testimony of his kingdom. 
His kingdom would not be one that would be crushed and blown away into the dustbin of history, but it would be one that lasts forever. And so he appealed to gold. And yet, we find here in chapter 5 is the fulfillment of that prophecy from chapter 2, that though he be a head of gold, even gold itself will crumble. And so we see here in Daniel 5, the writing on the wall, even for a kingdom of gold. The writing is on the wall, even for a kingdom of gold. As we think about this chapter, we want to think about it in three parts. First, we want to think about the party. Secondly, the prophet. And then thirdly, the passing of Babylon. The party, the prophet, and the passing of Babylon. And so first, the party. King Nebuchadnezzar, again, has long died, and his grandson, likely his grandson, is now on the throne, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar ends up throwing this enormous feast, this magnificent party. His father, King Nebuchadnezzar, was known for his great feats of conquering cities, of building the beautiful hanging gardens in Babylon, and all of these great feats that King Nebuchadnezzar was known for, but Belshazzar is simply known for being able to throw a party. And here, Belshazzar throws this party, as we're going to see, in defiance of the God of Daniel. And you'll notice that as this party is thrown, reference is made to these vessels that are brought in, and these vessels that specifically had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. Notice, though, how that temple is described in verse 3. It says, They brought in golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And then even later in chapter, in uh, verse 23, again it says of these vessels, it says, The vessels of his house. And so to understand what's taking place here, I think we need to first understand how an Israelite reading this originally would have understood what's happening here. Because they would have heard these things and been transported in their minds at least to the temple in Jerusalem. And they would have been reminded of the fact that the temple was considered the dwelling place of God. It was his house. And that house was furnished with various things. For example, you had a lampstand in the holy place in that house of God. The lampstand gave off light. And interestingly enough, opposite the lampstand in the temple of God in Jerusalem was a table. And on that table, bread. You might say, well, what is bread doing in the house of God? Well, just like bread, it's found in your house. It meant to symbolize fellowship. It meant to symbolize sitting down for a meal together. And this is how God portrayed his covenant relationship with his people. One of table fellowship. One of sitting down with his people. That they might enjoy him. And then they might have him as their God, as they are his people. This was the joy of the people of God. That God sat down to table with them. Some of the children here, maybe you don't like sitting down because your parents put food you don't want in front of you. But more often, tables are a place of joy. They're a place of fellowship. It's a place of nourishment. It's a place of conversation. It's a place of of knowing one another. 
And so in the house of God, far away for them as they're far east in Babylon, but again in their minds transported back to the temple of God, the house of God, they're reminded of the party, of the feast that they enjoyed in the presence of their God. Their God who nourished them, and it's their God who was their life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was their life. He nourished them. He strengthened them. He was their joy. And so I think that as the author, likely Daniel himself, is penning this chapter, he holds before us not just the temple, but twice again saying that this was the house of God. It's where we had fellowship with him. Think of the Psalms. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And the longing to dwell in the house of the Lord. Think of Psalm 23, one that may be very dear to your heart. One that that takes us through green pastures, but also one that brings us through the valley of the shadow of death, where I will fear no evil. But that psalm is a journey. And that psalm ends, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Life. That is the, the longing and the desire of God's people, to be in God's house. We get a foretaste of that every Lord's Day, even right now, as we come and gather. And though we're here in the city of Manhattan in a small little room, yet we are in the house of God, spiritually, by faith, as we join the angels around the throne of God in heaven. It is a foretaste of, and it is our great joy. And so I think that's important for us to see that, right? As an Israelite is is hearing of a different house, a different lampstand, a different table, one set not by their God, but by an idolatrous king, King Belshazzar. They're reminded by contrast of what they were taken from. They're in exile away from the house of their God, away from the table that he has laid. And the bread that he nourishes them with. That was for them a holy party. A good party that God would throw for his people. But here, in exile, we're brought into the room of an unholy party. We're brought into the room of King Belshazzar. Who also has a lampstand as it's told to us in this uh, passage here. Notice verse 5. We'll get to the hand on the wall, but notice it says that the hand appeared on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, contrast to the temple, opposite the lampstand, right? So we're again drawing these parallels here in the text. And rather than finding nourishment and life opposite the lampstand as was found in the temple because it was bread, instead opposite this lampstand they will find judgment and ultimately their demise. But Nebuchadnezzar Uh, Rather, Belshazzar is throwing this unholy feast, this unholy party. He invites thousands of his um, officials. In a sense, the whole kingdom is represented here. The whole kingdom of Babylon represented and gathered into a single room. And there they feast. And, And while it was often custom for these oriental kings to maybe go drink wine outside of the party, not in front of the guests, Belshazzar in his pride and his arrogance, in his stiff necked nakedness, if that's, if that's the right word, drinks in front of his, all these people. And he likely gets drunk in front of all of them. And after drinking wine intoxicated 
with foolishness and folly, he calls for the vessels that had been taken from the house of God in Jerusalem. The vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken back in uh, chapter 1 of Daniel. And those vessels are brought in and it says that they drank from those vessels and ate from those vessels and partied from those vessels in praise of their gods. As it says, verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And later, as Daniel denounces the king, he reminds them that such gods do not hear and do not know and ultimately cannot save them. And we've spoken about this a number of times already throughout the book of Daniel, that those who trust in lifeless idols become lifeless with them. Those who look to idols for safety and praise and worship them will ultimately find them not to be their protector. Ironically, the name Belshazzar means may, may Bel, the gods of Babylon, may Bel protect the king. And they're praising those such, such uh, gods as those. And so they are lifeless gods and those who become, uh, worship them become like them as we're going to see. Even the whole kingdom of Babylon will become like their gods. And so as they are drinking wine in Uh, through these vessels that belonged in the house of God that symbolized his presence, his holiness. Then a finger appears on the walls. And an Israelite reading this for the first time would smile at this point. Because he knows. He remembers. He remembers what God had done before. He remembered the finger of God appearing in Pharaoh's courts, bringing judgments upon him. As Exodus chapter 8 verse 19 tells us that the finger of God was against Pharaoh. They would have remembered how the finger of God carved in two tablets of stone the Ten Commandments and his law that is being desecrated here. The finger of God for them brought hope. And unlike the lifeless idols that they praised and worshipped, who could not hear, who could not touch, who could not present themselves, the living God has now entered the room. The living God has now crashed the party. And the living God will now deal with this blasphemous and proud king. And so it says immediately, verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And, and this is a serious account, right? We want to be serious and recognize what's taking place here. But we also want to recognize that the book of Daniel is also a comedy at times. Because it takes those who present themselves and appear strong and powerful and in control and unstoppable, pulls the curtain back on them to reveal them as nothing more than dependent babies thinking that they are in control. And so... I say that for a reason. It says here in verse 6, The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. And again, we don't want to just be crass here, but it's kind of funny what's really being said here. You could literally translate that his limbs gave way as his loins were loosened, which is to say, hopefully, King King Belshazzar was wearing a diaper. This great, powerful, proud king made to be a baby 
And God's people reading this, again, would laugh at that. It's totally proper and fine to laugh at God's, what God is revealing to us. In fact, we often say in Psalm 2, God sits in the heavens as he looks at the nations raging, the kings plotting in vain, and he laughs. For God in heaven laughs. He gives us all the reason as his people on earth to laugh along with him at these people. He stands above the affairs of man looking down upon them and laughs so that his people, so that we can be in the midst of the affairs of man and laugh as well. Laughter really only belongs to the Christian, if you think about it. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar is made uh, impotent at this point, and he's made to lose uh, control of his bowels. And the further funnier thing about this is that the text and the the chapter doesn't let us lose sight of this. Later, when the queen appears before the king... She reminds him of Daniel and says regarding Daniel in verse 12 that there is an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding in him to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Again, the literal translation would be, and to untie knots, going back to King Belshazzar earlier. And then even later, again, when Daniel is before the king, the king says to him, I hear that you are able to solve problems, you're able to untie knots. Again, each moment of that, we're reminded that Belshazzar is not all that he is uh, presenting himself to be. And so before we move on, though, we want to just note a couple things about Belshazzar by way of contrast. Right? Belshazzar, in many ways, is embodying the very spirit of the evil one. Belshazzar, in some sense, typifies as Satan himself. As God had laid a holy feast before his people to nourish them unto life, so Satan, a counterfeit, even a counterfeit chef, is one who lays a table before the world, not to give life, but to bring death. Not to nourish, but to poison. And again, this point we've, we've noted other, at other times. Satan is unoriginal in all that he does. He's a counterfeiter. And here he counterfeits the holy feast of God in his temple, with an unholy feast. And so Belshazzar then embodies for us the very spirit of Satan himself. And so he had no, first no fear of God in him. Right? He brings in these uh, vessels that belong to the God of heaven and drinks from them thinking that this God, the God of Daniel, had been conquered. And from the surface, it seemed just like that. Often when kings would conquer a city, they'd go into the temple and they would take all the vessels and bring them into the, te- into the temple of their own God as a testimony, as co- sort of war trophies of saying, our gods conquered theirs. And so on the surface of things, Belshazzar thought that his gods conquered them. Little did he know and little did he recognize and remember that um, his father, King Nebuchadnezzar, had learned earlier. But there was no fear of God in him. And it's this spirit that is so pervasive among us, even to this day. Even in our own culture, maybe more than ever. We live in a day in which the vast majority of people no longer fear to stand before God. I don't think that's a super insightful point. I think that's obvious to us, right? We live in a day where the vast majority of people no longer fear to stand before God. 
by way of contrast, I think the sermon, well-known in America, not saying I'm endorsing the sermon entirely, but Jonathan Edwards, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, as that sermon was delivered long ago, it was to a people who, as they were hearing of themselves like, like a rock dangling over a spider web over the fires of hell, they themselves began lifting their feet out of fear of what was presented to them, of, of caving in and falling down into the depths of the earth and its fire. How would such a sermon be received today? No fear, no trembling. You'd probably just laugh it off as some crazy preacher on the corner street somewhere. You see, the God of liberalism, the God who is merely a therapist, has won out in our day. And he's not a God who needs to be feared, but he is a God who simply provides therapy and self-help and practical advice. But not a God who is to be honored. Even the God, even the spirit of Belshazzar is at work among us as God is not, no longer feared. We no longer fear. We hear this at funerals all the time. Didn't matter if that person confessed Christ or not. Didn't matter what kind of uh, whether they related to Christ by faith or not. They were a good person and they're with the Lord. And so we've caved into what R.C. Sproul coined justification by death alone. Right? Simply a matter of dying and you appear before God and of course you're accepted before him. And so like Belshazzar, there is no fear of God before our eyes. And in that sense, for those who do not fear God, this passage and this chapter and this history here is a warning signal to, to us and to you to not follow the path of Belshazzar but rather to fear God and keep his commandments and seek refuge in his savior whom he provides for us in the Lord Jesus Christ not only was Belshazzar inspired by the spirit of Satan having no fear before him but secondly he was also proud as Daniel points out to him a proud king who grew tall. And the testimony time after time throughout God's word is that those who grow, pride, grow tall in their pride, God will cut down. God alone is to be high and exalted. Think of Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple as one who is high and lifted up. The train of his robe filling the temple. God is to be high. God is to be lifted high. God is to be exalted. And those who exalt him themselves, God will chop down like weak, dead trees. Though they, though they are tall, though they may appear impressive, God will chop down such trees. The divine axe man will come one day. Not only was there no fear, not only was he proud, but he was also stubborn. Later, as we're going to see, Daniel recounts the whole history of Nebuchadnezzar, how God took him as one who was proud, right? Nebuchadnezzar, at one point, was standing on top of his palace, looking down upon Babylon, saying, look at this great Babylon that I have created, that I have founded, a testimony to my name and my glory. And then as he is saying that, immediately a voice from heaven above him speaks down to him, and sends him in judgment into the wilderness, brings him low, so that he eats the grass of the field like an ox. And it wasn't until King Nebuchadnezzar looked up and acknowledged that there is a God in heaven, that the Most High rules the kingdom of man, that he was restored. And yet, in the midst of that history, 
uh, Belshazzar ignored it. He overlooked it. He would not learn that lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. He was stubborn and hard-hearted, and he would not learn. And so, rather than taking to heart what God had said, he begins to worship created things. And so this is the unholy feast, the unholy party that Belshazzar throws. And secondly, right, we spoke first of the party, but now we want to think about the prophet. In contrast to the unholy party, the holy prophet uh, enters in. And so the writing is on the wall for this kingdom of gold. And Belshazzar wants to understand its interpretation, so he calls in all of his wise men. And again, like before, as keeps repeating itself, they are unable to give the interpretation. It's interesting if you're in, uh, you could uh, find um, Rembrandt's depiction of this scene. And um, often Rembrandt, I have a, a volume of, of some of his portraits and things that he drew on, on my shelf, the biblical Rembrandt. And it's quite interesting, actually, the way he would almost provide commentary by way of a picture. And um, his depiction of this scene has... Uh, these Hebrew letters on the wall opposite the king, King Belshazzar, and has them written, um, rather than from right to left as Hebrew goes, rather he has them written down uh, from top to bottom, which is one of the, was one of the explanations for why these uh, wise men could, couldn't even read uh, the interpretation, the writing that was on the wall. But very much likely, it's simply that they are partaking of the curse that God put upon mankind once set in a different Babel long ago when he cursed mankind and confused their languages. And so, again, the prophets, the uh, magicians, the enchanters are unable to interpret this, and this dismays the king. The king's, likely the queen mother, hears of this and comes into the king's courts, says, O king, live forever, verse 10 Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And so she reminds him of Daniel. Now Daniel at this point is likely an old man, maybe in his mid-80s. He had been exiled when he was just a youth. And now having been in exile for nearly his entire life, for a long time, Daniel is now brought in before the king to again testify to the God of heaven. So he says in verse 13 that Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, trying to degrade him, speak down to him still, one of the exiles of Judah, whom whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And so the king um, recognizes Daniel and says, If you can read the interpretation, I too will give you, are the riches and make you third in the kingdom. And Daniel then, before the king, says in verse 17, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. And from here he proceeds in a sort of, what the Old Testament will kind of refer to as a covenant lawsuit. He brings a lawsuit from God against against King Belshazzar. He recounts the history that he should have recognized. He brings before him um, charges of what he has done, and then he pronounces a judgment upon him. He reminds him in verse, in the middle of verse 17, 
rather verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. This was the thing that he was to learn, right? That, that it was not Nebuchadnezzar himself who obtained these things by his own strength and power, but he was given them from the God of heaven, who is the true sovereign over all, and who is the one who both sets up kings and brings them down. And then as he recounts this history, which we already noted, it says in verse 22, Daniel speaks these damning words against Belshazzar. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You might pause here for a moment and to think about the way in which Belshazzar had responded to what he had heard and what he knew. You know, so often we hear that the Lord is coming, so often we hear that. He is a righteous judge whom we will have to one day stand before. And we know that. But are we responding properly to that? Or have we hardened ourselves like Belshazzar? It's often thought, well, yes, I know all of that. But I'll get right with God later at a different point. Let me just live my life for now. And later when I settle down, then I'll get right with the Lord. I was listening to one uh, seasoned pastor. He was talking and somebody had said that uh, to him. He said, well, let's try a practice run right now. Let's try a practice run right now. Living for the Lord, giving yourself to him. Because let's just see, you know, if, if you're going to do it later, let's just, let's just try it out right now. And he made the point that if you're unable to do it now, what makes you think that you will be able to do it later? There's an urgency, and, and Daniel presses that in terms of the immediacy of the fingers appearing and the immediacy of the judgment falling. More than that, we don't know the day or the hour of our own death when we will appear before the Lord. Today is a day of salvation. Today is the day to take what we know and, to, and, then to, and to put it into action and to believe those things and to return to the Lord. Belshazzar has not humbled, you have not humbled your heart Though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and so on. And he concludes by saying, But the God, in in verse 23, The God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And so Daniel reminds the king of his sin. He reminds the king of his shortcoming and his pride. He then pronounces a a judgment by reading the interpretation. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so as we saw the spirit of Satan moving Belshazzar in the lack of the fear of God and his pride and his stubbornness, unwillingness to learn the lessons of God, so we see a different spirit in Daniel. We see a spirit in Daniel of one that honors God, unlike Belshazzar. Before this great and awesome king, Daniel brought honor to the God of heaven. And he did this and was able to do so because he knew that while Belshazzar worshipped 
rocks and stones and gold and wood and whatever else it might be. He worshiped the one true and living God who must be honored. And so Daniel then honors the God of heaven, the one in whose hand is both Belshazzar and himself and all the kingdoms of man. More than just honoring God, the spirit of Daniel moves him to patient endurance. As you said earlier, Daniel at this point, as he appears before this great king, is past retirement age. He's 85, likely. He's been in exile for so long. You might think that he has grown tired. He's grown weary. But no, Daniel demonstrates the characteristic of patient endurance that is to define God's people even today. And Daniel was able to be patient in his endurance because he entrusted himself to the God who was his judge. He did not take judgment into his own hand. Daniel does not create a a plan to assassinate the king. Daniel entrusts himself to to him who judges justly, even echoing the Christ, Jesus himself who endured, who patiently endured injustice after injustice. And in 1 Peter, we read that he did so because he entrusted himself to he who judges justly. And so often the church is the temptation before us today to take judgment into our own hands and to think that that we are the ones who must execute the Lord's judgment today rather than being patient and recognizing That judgment belongs to God. And that we today are those not to judge, but rather those who are to seek the salvation of those who are lost and to be patient with them. Is your life marked by patience towards those who commit injustices against the church, against Christ, against you? Or is your reaction one to cast stones and destroy and break down in the name of the righteousness of God. That's often the internet personalities, right? They rile people up. They get you going because they want you to obviously click and watch and view. They want, but such is not the spirit of Christ that is at work in Daniel and that ought to be at work in us. What ought to be at work in us is a spirit of patient endurance, And Daniel was able to do this because he recognized that his home was not there in Babylon, even as our home is not here as well. He knew Babylon would fade away, just as we know every earthly kingdom will fade away as well. Belshazzar had offered Daniel the riches, all the riches of the kingdom, right? Purple robes, gold crowns, third in the kingdom, But such things were of no value, and and especially before Daniel, who knew that the kingdom was was to fall that very night. And that's the best the world can offer to us. We ought not to lose our conviction and die for the sake of cultural acceptance, societal appreciation, but rather we maintain our convictions, knowing that our treasures are kept in heaven for us. 
and that our God will bring us there. One of my favorite verses is uh, Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Right? He was raised in Pharaoh's courts, had the riches of Egypt before him, rather choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's why Daniel, before the king, could say, keep your gifts, I don't want them. I'm not a prophet for hire because I serve a king whose kingdom is everlasting, unlike yours, which even tonight will fade away. So here Daniel brings uh, this before the king. And so uh, on top of that, on top of Daniel honoring God, on top of Daniel showing patient endurance, he also shows in, the, in his words a faithful witness. What then are we to do in this world? Well, like Daniel, we are to bear faithful witness. And that is how we overcome, as the book of Revelation reminds us as well, by bearing faithful witness Like earlier, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bore faithful witness before Nebuchadnezzar, saying, if we die, we die, but we will not worship your idol. Because they knew in their death they would bring glory to their God. Faithful witness, even unto death. And that is what we are called to do. And that is what Daniel demonstrates here. As he he withholds nothing from the king, but declares the, the Lord's words to him. And so, like Daniel... The same spirit in him is at work in us. A spirit that ought to honor God in everything. A spirit that ought, that ought to engage in patient endurance and one of faithful witness in this world as well. And so Daniel pronounces this judgment upon the king. And finally we come to our third point, the passing of Babylon. The party, the prophet, and the passing of Babylon so swiftly, so quickly. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar and Uh, the the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The prophet of God outlasts the kingdom of Babylon. And the feast that was laid before the representatives of Babylon, the thousands who were brought before the king, it was a feast of death. The food was poison. And so too, every feast, every table that Satan lays before you and to tempt you. And so, the kingdom of Babylon has fallen. Isaiah had prophesied this in Isaiah 21 verse 9. Fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the images of her gods lie scattered on the ground. This is, as Isaiah speaks of, the day of the Lord. At least in its Uh, initial fulfillment, looking forward to the final fulfillment when the true king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ comes again and every kingdom of man on that day will fall, never to rise again. And so this is a serious message and yet one of great comfort for us as we uh, think, as we come to a conclusion here. We had said earlier how while Belshazzar sets up this unholy feast, right, in, the, in, in his house, and it's food that is poisonous leading unto death, we are again reminded in this passage, even as God's people were reminded, that as God's finger was able to bring down Belshazzar, 
so too his finger could again restore them and bring them back to his house. And that God's finger again could act with power to restore his people to fellowship with him, to come again to sit at table with him. It's this finger that came in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who as he casts out demons brings restoration. And Jesus himself says in Luke 12, 34, or rather earlier in, in, uh, in, in the chapter, that it is by the finger of God that he casts out demons, reflecting and echoing the finger of God here, bringing Babylon to the ground. And then, Dan, and then uh, Jesus comforts the people of God. He comforts you, saying, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, for us, we don't have to partake of the feasts of this world that lead unto death. But we have a table laid up for us in heaven. We have a feast laid before us in heaven in which we may partake of and find life. And in fact, as we come before the Lord's table, we have a foretaste of that meal even today in the house of God. We again are restored to fellowship with God that we might sit at table with him to eat and drink and be merry, not for tomorrow we die, but forever we shall live with the Lord. That is the great hope. And therefore, Daniel 5 then comforts us and calls us then to look to the Christ who will restore all things. And the Christ who will bring us again to sit at table with him. Who will lay down his life, who will shed his blood, that through we might have a new and living way opened up to return to God. Out of exile and again into the presence of our God to enjoy him forever. That is the kind of salvation that God provides for us. And so Daniel 5 is not just a matter of, I don't want to be judged. But more than that, there is the the reward, the gift, the grace held out to you of coming to table with our God to enjoy him so that Christ himself would be our meal, that Christ himself would be our nourishment, and that we would live as we are united to him by faith. And out of that union, comes all of our strength in this life, even today, as we pilgrim on to that heavenly home, as we pilgrim on to that better country, as Hebrews 11 tells us, as we look forward to dwelling in the house of our God forever and ever. And I want to conclude with Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 18, we have the fall of Babylon again. And in Revelation 19, we have what follows, the great joy of God's people. It says this, beginning at verse 1. After this, I, John, heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. If you are in Christ, that is where your life is headed and that is where he is leading you. And the Lord's Supper today is a foretaste of that. And it testifies and says, I no longer need to partake of the poison that is led, put before me by this world. I can partake of Christ. And he is nourishment for my soul. He is the bread of life. He is living water. Whoever partakes of him shall never grow thirsty or hungry again. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that as you sent manna long ago to your people to nourish them in the wilderness, so you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true bread of heaven. Father, may we partake of him by faith. May we rest in him alone and find him to be nourishment for our soul. Father, thank you that you have promised that every unholy party and every unholy feast laid before us by Satan will be overthrown. And those tables opposite the lampstand um, possess only judgment. But the table opposite your lampstand, the light of your word, is the bread of life. And so may Christ be our nourishment. And may we rest in him. And give us joy as we come before his table, as he feeds us with his own body and blood. By faith we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.